Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Laura Blumenshine. I am an assistant professor at uh, Purdue University in the Mechanical Engineering Department. Thanks so much, Laura, for joining us. I would like to go back when you were a child, Laura. Do you have any memories you were interested in science or technology? Any memories about that? Yeah, uh, hearing some of the stories my parents tell and some of my very early memories uh, from childhood, I, I could tell that I was I was actually fascinated by robotics from a really early age. Uh, I remember when we moved, when I was very young, I stole a bunch of moving boxes to make, you know, quote unquote robots by stacking them together. And I had elaborate plans I would draw up and present to my parents on robots I wanna build. Uh, it was a long time in between that and when I actually got to start building robots, but, uh, but I had that drive really early on. I was always fascinated by it. That's so interesting, yeah. So if I ask you, what is the first robot you build? I and mean, what's the feeling you had at this time? Yeah, yeah the, the first robot I actually got to build, were they were pretty simple. Uh, just things like um, mousetrap vehicles where you could change how far they went, things like that, uh, which aren't even really robots in some sense. Uh, but the the feeling I had of just being able to kind of create that contraption that had a, a physical output into the world, uh, it's it's fascinating and it's 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 really great in order to be able to take those ideas and, and turn them into a reality. Wow, so that's very interesting. Since you said about physics, so do you have any favorite equation that may be simple and beautiful, profound you find while you're working? Oh, that's that's an interesting question. Uh, I in my mind, uh, I haven't really told many people this, but I've I've had a love hate relationship with the capstan equation for a long time. Uh, which, for those unfamiliar, the capstan equation you know describes the the frictional interface of pulling tendons around a curve, uh, and it results in this incredibly simple relationship of the input and the output tension. But even in the simplicity of the equation, there is this, this uh, difficulty in actually dealing with the outputs. Uh, so it's really easy to describe and really beautiful and simple, but then having to deal with it as an engineer uh, just <laughs> really, uh, really irks me sometimes. So I'm curious to ask you how you came across soft robotics. What is the actual start for you in soft robotics field? Yeah, I I kind of tumbled into soft robotics a little at a time. So, uh, like I said, I, w I was interested in robotics for a long time, but didn't really have any kind of conception of this, you know, cutting edge of robotics. Um, and so, how I came to it was I was I was you know working in a robotics lab uh, in in undergrad. And we were just, we were starting to do things like series elastic actuation, which most soft roboticists wouldn't even consider traditionally soft robotics, but it's still that, that kind of first step 
into adding compliance into a traditional robotic system. Uh, and then it was about uh, instead of you know traditional uh, 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 ways of routing cables around pulleys, let's put you know let's put boating cables in there. And that's just you know one step before I, I started thinking of myself as a a roboticist who wanted to add compliance. Uh, and that was around the time when I started really learning about soft robotics as a field specifically and taking, you know, taking the full dive into the, uh, into the soft robotics experience. That's interesting. So I think that's a question related to here in, in our field. We ask how, how you would define soft robotics from your perspective. That's first question. Yeah. Um, that's, that's a good question. I, I think that, like I said, when I was working with series elastic actuation, I didn't think of that as soft robotics and I didn't see a lot of people who, who consider that soft robotics, but nowadays that does really seem to me to be in the same idea space. And so how I see soft robotics is an intentional use as opposed to an avoidance of compliance and the natural kind of system dynamics of the uh, the structure that you're building. Mm -hmm. That's interesting, yeah. So I think maybe the question here, what are the most important questions that should be considered while you're working in soft robotics? Since you were working in undergrad and you didn't recognize it's soft robotics, and now you're a system professor, and you still have challenges to answer this question. What could be the most important question you have to consider while working in the field? Oh, the most important question. Uh, I I think the most important question is is not even really related to the field itself. I think that the most important question is a little more philosophical uh, and a little more introspective, which is the question of why this this concept, this idea of building compliance into our systems that as soft roboticists we think is so important and so beneficial, uh, why hasn't it exploded out into uh, wider fields yet? You know, why, why are we still this kind of much smaller field? I mean, we've been growing a lot um, and it's, it's, you know, it, the past decade or so, but the concepts of soft robotics go back, you know, uh, three decades or more. Uh, so I think that there's this question of, it sounds almost pessimistic when I talk about it this way, but I think it's, it's in, yeah, it's important to be introspective about this, uh, this sort of idea, because I think it will help us focus on how do we get the biggest impact out of what we're doing right now. I think that a, a great example maybe doesn't come from my work directly, but it's, it's, um, it's, uh, work that I, I am very uh, familiar with from from the labs that I've been in uh, through my my academic career, um, and that's in the world of wearable robotics. Um, and so exoskeletons have been around for a long time, um, but the adoption of exoskeleton technology by actual users has been very slow. And there's lots of reasons for that in terms of um, in terms of price point uh, and in terms of the kind of readiness of the technology. Uh, but one of the most interesting things I've seen out of the kind of field recently is that there are certain software technologies that are very uh, 
simple, very naive concepts maybe, uh, but are actually uh, well received by the users that they're aimed at. Um, and so while this isn't, you know, kind of talking about the field is in a uh, in general as a whole, I think that that same sort of idea is you don't always know what is the thing you should be shooting for to get um, get the results you want. And sometimes you have to take a step back and ask your user base or ask ask your uh, interrogate your assumptions. And so in this case, it was you know this assumption that people who lose functionality of their you know of their arm will want to regain full functionality. They want a replacement. When in actuality, most people who uh, have lost functionality just want you know, one step closer. They want a simple solution that they can understand uh, instead of a complex solution that is going to frustrate them. I think this point is very important what you say. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious to ask you what you think, where does problem come from? Or what could be solution for that? Yeah, I, I think that it's not a problem that is uh, that is only existing in robotics or soft robotics. I think this is a problem across uh, academics as a whole, and I don't think it's a problem with, without a solution. Um, I think that it is something that develops from from the fact that to to do research, you have to so carefully um, uh, specialize yourself in order to to understand uh, a field. And so you often lose sight of, of other fields around you. Um, and so the solution to this I see is reaching out to those broader fields, asking them what they need, how you can pr provide that for them, um, and trying to understand uh, how the technology, the research you're working on aims at some point in the future to, to meet back with, uh, with your goals. I think that's a very important uh, point, yeah. And I think maybe the question related here, uh, what is an area or direction of research? You think it's very promising, but maybe the community seems to disagree or doesn't give much, much attention to it at the moment? Hmm. This is a tough one, because I, I see the, the software bias community has really filled out in the last few years and has started exploring all of these different aspects. I, I think that one of the areas that I'd like to see more focus on, um, because I think we've to take a little bit of a tangent, I think we've seen some great developments in creating fully soft robots uh, and seeing how we can uh, turn everything, including you know the electronic system, into into compliant material. Um, I'd like to see some some thought in the other direction of how do we uh, intelligently uh, design stiffness gradients? How do we get variable stiffness uh, either just in the structure or uh, in some mechanism that we're actually able to change the stiffness. Uh, I think soft robotics has been so defined by its difference from traditional robotics um, that I think we've lost a little bit of touch in the fact that uh, 
we we are really kind of the same field still um and we need to investigate that middle area more i think that's that's a really interesting point i may I ask you why do you think maybe sometime there's a focus on certain technique where does it come from if we want to be look outside a box or in a different perspective why do you think we have sometimes we focus only in one approach or technique uh, I, I think that it's maybe a combination of group think, you know, we, we uh, not, not to, to say that, uh, that is, uh, not to say it in kind of a, uh, um, what is the word, uh, a bad way. Because uh, I think that, I think that that leads to some interesting explosive growth in certain directions. But I think that people have a tendency to see a really cool idea uh, and want to leap on it, want to to apply their own perspective. Again, I don't think that that's a bad thing. I think it's something that also leads to a lot of benefits. Um, uh, but I think that can tend to have people group up around a promising idea, um, even if it's not the not the only way forward. And I'm curious also ask you what are the most misconceptions you have witnessed about soft robotics and maybe something concerning you have witnessed? Yeah, I I think that the the biggest misconception that I feel like is surrounding the field uh is that it's I guess that it's it's kind of easy or childish you know uh that it is simple how these things are designed because a lot of the work right now uh that is uh outward facing is about cool looking robots you know that look like octopuses or stuff like that um so it feels almost a little uh, a little like presentary for the camera um and i think that 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 makes it feel as though uh maybe traditional robotics is doing the serious work and soft robotics is doing, you know, this, this fun other work um, that isn't as serious. And I think um, that potentially this is a misconception that is, is a little bit internal also in, in how we tend to separate ourselves from traditional robotics as, as kind of our own field. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's a loaded answer. Uh, I really like your answer, but I, I assume from your answer, you mean that it's maybe uh, from our side as a community, we have also to take responsibility towards what we export, right? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's definitely true. It is, I, I think that there's still a, a large area to be explored in terms of design and creative output in soft robotics. Um, but I think it's also a, a little bit time for the field to start to focus on addressing some real challenges and some real world challenges that traditional robotics can't meet. Uh, I think that there's there's a real need for almost, you know, a, a uh, <laughs> one of your kind of traditional, you know, DARPA robotics challenges, but for addressing something that um, traditional robotic systems can't do yet, you know, really show that soft robotics has developed to the point where we can bring together these disparate ideas within the field 
uh, and produce a system that does something useful. So if you can give also an operation, because we're students listening to you now, what could be a problem you think very critical and we have to address it like a first step? One example for that. Uh, I think that one example is something I talked about earlier, which is in the, in the world of wearables. Uh, I think that um, we, in how robotics is currently uh, applied practically in the real world, there is not a lot of human-robot interaction. We, we know that uh, a lot, and we say that a lot as soft roboticists is one of our driving factors. And I think leaning into that is one of the biggest um, kind of areas that we can start to address. Uh, in the realm of wearables, um, there, there's a lot of different problems. There's uh, creating, uh, active supports for people who are doing manual labor. Uh, there is um, uh, replacing uh, uh, kind of the manual labor that people have to do to help other people with disabilities. Um, there is helping reduce the, the burden on physical therapists for rehabilitation uh, and expanding the ability for, for more people to get access to uh, rehabilitative tools. Um, I think there's a lot of things that creating safe, uh, simple systems using the techniques of soft robotics uh, could address uh, in that area. That's wonderful. So I think that's the question in soft robotic. What is the most inspiring living creature from your perspective? And I'm asking this question because you mentioned about design and also understanding. I think that's something how we use either biometric or biomimicry in our in designing the technique. So what could be that something could be inspiring for you from the nature or design? Yeah, I, I feel like given my past work, I, I have to say, I have to say plants, uh, uh, especially because it's, it's an area where people haven't, you know, looked as closely previously. And, you know, we all know kind of, colloquially how Venus flytraps work, uh, just that, you know, you, you touch the Venus flytrap and it snaps shut. Um, but drilling down into how that actually functions, um, I think especially in the realm of uh, uh, kind of embodied intelligence, morphological computation, there's a ton of interesting lessons to be learned from uh, plant systems since, uh, since, you know, for all intents and purposes, there's no central nervous system. Uh, they, they do have kind of other, other structures that act, uh, in some regards similar to that. Um, I will also though tell kind of an interesting anecdote, uh, in the realm of biomimicry and bioinspiration, which is that sometimes you find your bioinspiration after you create your structure. Um, so the, the growing robot that I've worked on for, for a long time uses this kind of uh, unfolding of material at the tip, which for, as I said, we always described as plant inspired, but it wasn't until we started uh, writing up our, our first paper on the topic that we actually developed that, or uh, we actually discovered that uh, this was not a, you know, idea that didn't exist yet. Uh, or just an artificial idea. This was a system that actually existed out in nature as well. 
there are uh, blood worms and other worms uh, that extrude their their uh, digestive systems in the same way. And I, I think that uh, as, as soft roboticists and bio-inspired roboticists, we tend to look for the beautiful things in, in nature to inspire us, but there's also a ton of very interesting structures that are, you know, uh, these worms who spit out their stomachs in order to feed. Uh, and that's really, honestly, um, even if we call our robot a plant robot, that's the closest analog in nature is these these worms to to what our systems do. Yeah, I really like this answer. That's really a good answer. Uh, and I'm curious to ask you because maybe a student may be working now and ask himself, to which level I have to abstract the real system at the mentioned plant. So if I want to look to around myself just in nature and see how, how I can abstract or make analogy what's happened in the nature. So which element do you think be significant to maybe replicate in your artificial system? What that could be that something could be significant if you work on example in growing uh, soft robots? Yeah, I think that uh, as I've alluded to, our robot, our growing robot doesn't grow like plants. And so I think that the, in there lies also my answer um, for, for kind of the level of, or a level of, of abstraction. I am more inspired by behaviors. Um, I think that there is a lot to be learned from, from systems. Um, and there's a lot of interesting research going on into replicating uh, systems at either the uh, the the micro scale or um, or you know carefully replicating them in order to to learn more. Um, but I think with our current technology and with an interest in getting technologies out into the world that are useful, uh, imitating behaviors uh, of nature is really the way to go. So in the growing robot, we imitate the behavior of growth, not the function of growth. That's a really good point. Yeah, that's a good point. So if you can tell us now, because I, th I think you have now been working uh, in, uh, in academia for a long time and now assistant professor, so what could be the research line you, you are going to focus on soft robotics? Something and you have been maybe passionate about soft robotics and you want to invest more in. I, so to, to put the broadest spin on my interests, uh, I, I am interested in creating robust and adaptable systems that interact with the real world. Uh, so my, my research focus, I want to kind of touch into a few different areas of that pipeline uh, along the, the kind of research spectrum. Um, particular things that interested me interest me, I think I've alluded to this a little bit already, but uh, wearable systems um, uh, and creating wearable robotic systems is, is very interesting to me on the side of what I see as closest to being applicable, closest to being ready to, to actually do good in the world. Uh, and then on the other side of things, um, I, I think that there's still some very interesting research needed in understanding what makes a good soft actuator and how can we sort through the large range of very creative work that people are producing 
where they're making dozens of different actuator types and different variations on these themes to understand which one is actually going to work for your robotic system. Uh, we can't all be, I think, uh, at some point we can't all be experts on soft actuators. Uh, some of us are going to have to be soft actuator users. Um, and so that's that's the other, uh, I think one of the other areas of, of research I'm really interested in is how do we uh, create uh, the frameworks, the tests, the validations for soft actuators so that we can better compare uh, and understand their specific benefits. That's really good questions and points to be considered here. Yeah. So if I ask you, what do you think the biggest technological roadblocks that could face soft robotics in the short term and long term? So maybe we can go for your research line first and then the, uh, the spectrum of robotics in general. If you can tell us about that. Yeah. Sure, yeah. Uh, so uh, with regards to kind of my, my research line, uh, in, in the past, uh, I've worked on this, this growing robot system and have applied it to, uh, developed it and applied it to kind of navigation in unstructured environments um, for, for a few different tasks. Um, moving forward, I'm interested in um, uh, still working on the growing robotic system in order to uh, address interesting uh, challenges like creating deployable wearable systems, uh, creating uh, construction on demand, uh, uh, and a few other things. Um, within those challenges specifically, um, I think the the biggest technological roadblock uh, that I see for soft robotics comes down to how do we apply forces um, and kind of that question of, of can we apply forces. Um, so I think in the short term, it's about um, just kind of understanding what are the systems we have currently developed good for? Uh, so you don't have to apply forces in order to maybe walk around an environment and take, uh, you know, take video, uh, uh, do kind of inspection tasks. Um, but uh, we need to understand which technologies have we developed uh, are going to kind of always reside in that realm and which ones can we push forward um, to be more broadly applicable. Uh, and in the long term, I think that uh, starting to create um, the systems that reside more in the, the middle ground between soft robotics and traditional robotics, and also systems that have that uh, realizable stiffness change, uh, either through the physical robot or through control, uh, in order to apply you know, significant forces are in our environment. Um, that will be an important part of getting soft robots to do useful tasks. Uh, this this kind of stems out of a, uh, it's somewhat inspired by, by a talk that I saw um, uh, Professor Mark Kokoski from, from Stanford University give at um, the first uh, soft robotics uh, conference where he talked about, yes, 
uh, we can see these diagrams where all systems or you know the majority of systems in our real world the majority of biological systems have uh, majority soft material but you and I still have bones right <laughs> and bones are still important <laughs> I, I would like to stop again because you said something interesting about how we apply the force and how he gets his forces. Do you think this understanding, uh, if we speak realistically about it, is, is come down to have a descriptive model, just physicalist modeling? How do you see this kind of understanding? Because it's, you stress about understanding. So what could be the feasible approach to achieve what you said? Yeah, I, I think modeling and experimentation are, are hugely important. Um, and I think it's a mix of both. Uh, this somewhat stems out of my own experience in the field where um, uh, there have been multiple points where I thought I had a good enough understanding of what was going on uh, to do away with experimentation, just to build a model. Uh, and then I come back to find that I've actually been wrong and the underlying principle is much more complicated than I assumed it was. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I don't know, Laura, if I agree that modeling sometimes is underappreciated in the field. Do you have this feeling for that, that modeling is underappreciated? Because we ask always what kind of, or maybe what the level of simulation or modeling we have to go for, which is scale. So I don't know how you see the, the modeling uh, appreciated or underappreciated in the field. I think modeling with a purpose is underappreciated. I, I think that when you, in, in my opinion, when you set out to make a model, you need to understand what you're trying to get out of that model. Um, sometimes modeling a, a full soft structure using something like um, uh, finite element analysis uh, is important uh, for the task that you're trying to get uh, do. But sometimes, what you need is a descriptive model that allows you to extrapolate your information um, and you know hit that next kind of goal in terms of understanding. Uh, so I think there's a place for both, but I think that soft robotics as a field has focused has has been so wrapped up in the fact that soft materials are hard to describe that they have gone for the big tools to start with. Um, and while it's not always true, uh, I think that sometimes it's the smaller tools that get us that next step and allow us to uh, present our work in an understandable way to the rest of our field and to, to uh, kind of academia lar uh, on a larger scale. Yeah. yeah. So I think this question is related also about uh, understanding. Do you think, um, as a community, we really understand the physics behind smart material? If we speak that, we need both passive material and smart material. And I think you were in the in the first debate. You were moderating the vertical computation, PS, uh, the control techniques, and now we have second debate as well in the same context. So, how do you see this level of understanding for such material in our field? I think that understanding at the level of uh, being able to to kind of predict different material qualities and predict how those materials will behave in a structure um, 
that's still being developed uh even to the point where um there hasn't uh been any real research into looking at uh this is getting a little technical but looking at how uh speeding up the curing time of silicones using ovens uh affects the material properties but that's a, something that a ton of researchers do uh in order to you know speed up their experiments um so i think that there's a lot that we as soft roboticists are kind of pushing on the boundaries of how these materials have been used previously and have been understood previously. And I think it's great that we are not waiting. Uh, we are not waiting for someone to come around and say, okay, here's how you're allowed to use the material before we're going off and exploring. Um, but at the same time, that does lead us in this, leave us in a little bit of a kind of, uh, dark space of understanding what exactly is going to happen. Uh, and I, I don't, to answer the question, I don't think that we, we understand our materials fully. Um, I'm not sure that that's necessary always for research. I think it will eventually be necessary for, for achieving our goals, but I think we can do uh, good research uh, a little bit sometimes by exploring in the dark. I think that's interesting. I think that the debate, I think, uh, will, I think in the same context. So I think that would be helpful so that we can know, as you said, it, whether we have to understand deeply about this material or just looking for something different functionality or structures. So you're right. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you also, what, what something you have been working on and, and in, in Siri or just analytical modeling and, and empirical results proved something completely different and was interesting to you? Maybe something you wasn't expected. Oh, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, yeah, here's, this, this was from a while ago. Uh, and this, this was from very early on when we were, when we were using the, um, uh, or not using, but developing the, the growing robot, um, we had seen some interesting behavior in terms of being able to get through very small gaps, uh, kind of being able to squish down and still um, uh, move through through uh, different stiffness, uh, different frictional, different, you know, roughness structures. Um, and we were trying to answer a very simple question, which was, what is the smallest gap this robot can get through? Uh, that was all the question was. And it, it was turning out to be pretty difficult. So eventually we came up with this testing apparatus where we slowly varied the gap. It, in, in all uh, honesty, it was you know just a, a plank of wood resting on top of some bricks and then you, you know, you extend the robot down into, into that gap. Um, uh, but what we, what we ended up finding was something we did not expect at all, um, which, which was that the, the force we needed to grow was completely independent of the, the gap size that we were growing into this this was and again this kind of comes back to the sorts of things that happen when you don't really understand the material and we still don't have a full understanding of why this is true uh we don't really know 
why why these thin yeah why these thin walled structures as they uh evert out the tip of this tube uh always take this you know always have kind of the same uniform loss almost um but it was it was not something we were looking to find uh but it re revealed this very interesting empirical principle that we've used since then in a lot of our work. I think that's an interesting example about understanding, but it's a really interesting example. Yeah. So if I ask you, how do you see uh, soft robotics in general, what you see around you, so intelligent, or to which level they are intelligent? And maybe you can define first, uh, what is the optimum goal you think for intelligent and soft robotics and call so intelligent? I think if if we're going to aim for the largest kind of goal we can hit, intelligence is just the ability to adapt to the unknown. Um, I think in practical sense, it's the ability to adapt to the unknown given a certain boundary of unknown you expect to encounter, right? Uh, this is the sort of thing of if I'm if I'm walking through a forest, I expect to see trees. I might not know exactly what the trees look like, but I expect to see trees. Um, and maybe, you know, maybe something unexpected will happen. Um, within soft robotics, I think we've seen some interesting and promising results in this direction of reacting to the unknown. My my take right now, and this is this is looking introspectively as well, is that a lot of what we're finding is uh, kind of passive responses and uh, underlying behaviors within materials. And the big challenge is going to be figuring out how to harness those, either through control or through clever design. Um, in order to get out the behaviors we are actually interested in, uh, especially when we don't know what we're going to find. Yeah, I think what you said is very interesting, and maybe I can relate to Professor Jan Spitzer episode from Max Planck Institute. He said that we, we have to design software about that more productive and less relying on feedback. I think that may be related to what you tried yeah. to mention. Yeah, and uh, I don't know what you think maybe is a challenge in, in that case, if you want to design predictive soft robotics and less relying on feedback. What could be challenging here? Well, I think sometimes the challenge is, and I think this exists in in the field of robotics in general, um, and, and kind of the field of, even outside of robotics, when we talk about you know, artificial intelligence and, um, computer vision systems, how do you design something that's going to react well to a situation that you as the designer don't even anticipate? That, that is a question that's larger than the field of soft robotics. It's, it's across a lot of engineering disciplines right now. Um, and I think that, I think that uh, I anticipate we will have some realization uh, in that kind of area uh, coming out of one of those fields uh, that may permeate 
across across the different fields that are concerned with this. Um, it, that's not to say that we should be waiting on our heels for something to come. Uh, I think we can, you know, start to push in this direction by creating creating uh, soft materials, creating responsive structures, um, and doing tests where we put robots into situations where we don't know what's going to happen and see how they respond. That's um, really super interesting uh, research line to be investigated. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about nonlinearities because um, Professor George White said that nonlinearities can bring opportunities to robotics, like buckling. But I'm curious to ask you, through your work, what kind of nonlinearities you can keep or maybe you have to remove? It depends on what, what scenarios you think maybe nonlinearities could be beneficial to soft robot and maybe maybe could be detrimental for soft robot. So you have to remove it. Yeah. Uh... Again, this is one of those areas where we've discovered some behaviors that are very interesting. Um, I think of uh, a, a few different areas in software box have discovered these interesting snap through buckling events where you can get very fast response from otherwise, you know, slow actuation systems. I think the question there is how do you apply those active nonlinearity events um, in order to, uh, I think that there's a question of how do you apply them in, or, in order to you know, get an out, output that you're interested in. Uh, but on a larger scale, when is that useful? Uh, <laughs> this is not, not being facetious. Um, I, I think that it's, it takes some, some careful consideration of design thought of when something like that will actually be beneficial to your system. Um, but I think that there's also a lot of passive nonlinearities. Uh, and that's something that I think will become more important as we start to develop out this field of embodied intelligence, morphological computation, whatever you want to call it, uh, that is concerned with putting interesting responses into the structure. And I think nonlinearity is going to be the uh, nonlinearity and how to control the robot when you don't want nonlinearity is going to be the, the, the main question there. You're right, yeah. So since you were the moderator of the first debate, I'm asking you this question. Do you think that traditional control techniques can destroy the natural dynamic of soft robot, or do you think we still, we still can use it? What's your position in, in, in that debate? Yeah, uh, I think that, um, I don't think that there needs to be a war between the two. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that this kind of destruction of natural dynamics has its, has its place in soft robotics. I, I think that the, the kind of um, emphasis on the underlying dynamics of the structure always being the best uh, are not necessarily uh, necessarily correct. And I, I draw that a little bit from, from my past work with series elastic actuators, where for all intents and purposes, how you control series elastic actuators is you are trying to override the kind of existing dynamics, uh, you know, existing stiffness of the system. 
uh, especially through impedance control. Um, but inherently at the, at the source, you are using the dynamics of the system that you put in there in order to better program into it the dynamics that you want. Uh, and so that's that's how I kind of view that meshing of traditional controllers and the existing uh, stiffness dynamics of soft robotics uh, potentially meshing in the future. Yeah. So we're closing to the end. We have a few questions. The first one about communication, because I think that's a challenge in the field since we are into the sibling field, but a challenge of speaking different language. Do you think there's really challenges still in the field uh, that we speak different language or understand each other? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, this is this is also an incredibly important language, and it's or importantly, incredibly important question, um, which is almost related to the first one. Uh, but yes, I think that when we are trying to interface with related but distinct fields like material science uh even you know it's starting to become like i said a little bit just traditional robotics field like how do we how do we try to explain the ideas we're coming up with to traditional robotic uh, roboticists i think that the challenge and the opportunity lies in creating a shared kind of mathematical understanding um uh problems that exist here this and this goes back to some of the things i said early on uh in our in our conversation today uh is really about understanding what other people in other fields need and what other people in other fields have uh so i think that while i don't know how to start to build that language it's it is something i'm interested in doing but I, you know i think Anyone who says they know exactly how to bridge the gaps between two distinct fields um, uh, probably hasn't considered everything yet. Uh, but I think that one of the biggest uh, and, and best approaches that I've found is just to share your ideas widely um, and not just sharing them with other people in your field who have you know, like-minded ideas or who are talking about the same things you're talking about, but to try to exchange them more broadly um, with people you think would be interested in your applications and also with people you think would be beneficial to your, uh, to your research, um, like material scientists. It, we, can't, we can't build a bridge from one side. I think we need both sides of a divide like that to work towards meeting in the middle uh, is really the the best way forward I see with that. I think also this question is related. How can we ensure a diversity of approaches that get exposure they, they deserve and prevent overinvestment and limit techniques? I think a question about academics tend to establish a strong belief about uh, other fields that come off often as arrogance or elitism at will and discouraging the exploration of ideas outside the mainstream. So that's a question about uh, intellectual inclusiveness, uh, how we can have a room for competitive ideas and be inclusive. Since we have limited funding and grants, so there's a severe competition in, in our field sometimes, I think in academia in general. So how we can solve this problem? 
Yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Um, <laughs> I I almost see that as somewhat describing how how soft robotics has kind of grown because, like I said, a lot of the ideas underlying soft robotics has have existed for decades, but it's only recently that they have really exploded. And if you want to go back and interrogate why that happened, uh, I don't think you're going to see a single a single moment where something changed. So I think if I had to go back and interrogate why things like this happen, uh, it is a mix of an openness to new ideas and answering how you remain open to new ideas. Uh, that's tough. That's kind of a, you know, a personal, <laughs> a, a personal sort of, um, uh, question sometimes, though I think as a field, we can remain open to new ideas by not establishing boundaries over around what counts, you know, what counts as soft robotics or what counts as uh, control of soft robots, you know, um, by not setting up rules and gatekeeping in terms of what we let in, I think we can at least leave ourselves open to ideas. And then as that's, you know, kind of the passive response, the active response is going out and looking for the trends that you see and the people you see bucking those trends um, and giving them uh, maybe not equal weight, but giving them some amount of time uh, in your in your mind uh, to to kind of understand uh, where those other ideas are coming from and what they're saying. Um, um. Yeah. And I think that's really a, a good point. But I think realistically speaking, sometimes there's a challenge of the risk of the research. Because if you, I think that's something some researchers struggle with if you have a new idea and sometimes it's challenging to get result, visible result in a short term as publication yeah, or something. Yeah. It's a challenging for the funding. It's tricky to be honest. It's tricky for some researchers. Yeah, no, I think that's that's definitely the case. Um, yeah, I'm I'm not sure personally. I have a, a, a lot of ability to speak to this. Uh, yeah, uh, just just you know, I'm very early on in my my career in terms of yeah. uh, addressing <laughs> okay. some of these problems. Yeah, uh, okay, so maybe uh, later. But, okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> do, you, <laughs> do you think ego is important for the researcher? Yeah, I, I, I will have to say yes. I, I think ego is important. Um, uh, I think that uh, it is a, important up to a point. Um, where, where I will say I, I kind of find that personally is that it is important to kind of be a champion for your own ideas. And ego plays into that because to be a champion for your own ideas, you have to believe that your ideas are correct. <laughs> Obviously, you should, as like I said, ego is important up to a point. You should be willing to accept evidence to the contrary. But it, kind of going back to that last point about how do we let new ideas in, uh, sometimes that's on the person with the new idea. You have to be ready to fight for your idea. Um, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. And which book inspired you, whether in personally or professionally? was inspiring for you? 
I I read a book um, a long time ago. I think this was was back in high school. Uh, that was called uh, it was called like the philosophy of scientific revolutions or like the cause of scientific revolutions. It was uh it was about you know how things like uh, heliocentrism um, actually came to eventually become the main uh, scientific theory when they had kind of putzed around in the background for so long. Um, and so that's, you know, it's not your kind of traditional robotics inspiration, but I, that was hugely inspiring for me as an idea of what, what research means. Um, because research means going out and trying to find ideas that no one has thought about before and show show how they work um even if even if no one's looking that direction yet right um that's very important yeah 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 and if i ask you what are the most important qualities you have gained while working in academia and something you have to maintain a quality you have to maintain in your academic journey I think the the most important quality that I've gained has been the ability uh or at least the the recognition um that you need to be able to explain your ideas to a wide audience and kind of how do you take your scientific ideas uh, and explain them to people who have no ex ex uh, experience in your field. Um, I think that that's, for me, is hugely important because it, it ties into so many things. It ties into how do you talk to potential collaborators? How do you introduce new people, new students, new researchers to your field? Um, and how do you get the information out uh, into the public about the discoveries that you've made such that you can get those uh unexpected connections with the real world and with academia um so I, I i think that's also the thing that i i want to maintain going forward uh i think that this you know is a through line in, in what we've been talking about today but an important part of research like this uh where you are so close to that um so close to that application realm uh, is being able to talk across the spectrum and be understandable to a wide range of people. I, I can't agree more with this point. It's very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important for a researcher. Yeah. And finally, what was the best advice was given to you as a person or professionally and was a life changing? Hmm. I think that the the best advice that was given to me wasn't wasn't really any one thing that was said or that was kind of expressed to me though though there were times when when I had kind of conversations the 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 best advice that was given was just in the examples of the people who I did research under um that's the thing that I I take most most to heart um, in in my my research uh, and in in how I try to do things and influence the the 
you know, people that come after me. Uh, because, you know, when I started kind of on my academic career, uh, I always assumed I was going to, you know, finish my bachelor's and go, you know, work for an oil company or something like that, you know, go do robotics in, in some, some applied field. Uh, and it was, it was through the example of, you know, the mentors around me and the people who I saw doing work, uh, in academia that I kind of saw why it's important and what it can do. I think that a, a mentor needs to be willing to, you know, willing to be patient and willing to, to wait on people to kind of find their way to to an understanding by themselves, um, but also needs to display where you can get to, right? Um, it's, it's an interesting balance of being able to provide advice and provide nudging in the right direction uh, without doing something for someone because the goal of mentorship is to come out the other side, you know, uh, and have a researcher or, uh, you know, a professional who is able to work for themselves and uh, create uh, benefit in the world uh, based off of kind of what, what you've given them and how you've helped shape them. Um, and I think in that regard, it's also important in mentorship to not think about it in a vacuum, right? We, as, as researchers, um, even though we are kind of trapped in our labs for a lot of the time, we're, we're producing things that will, you know, potentially get out into the world at some point in time. And so it's important to think about how this influences people, how this influences society, um, on a range of scales and as a mentor it's important to not just you know express to your mentees how to do research how to uh, produce papers how to get output academically but also how to think about what changes your research will have on the world yeah that's very wise words, and I think that's something we need more focus in, in academia in general, for the qualities of a mentor. And what you mentioned is really important to think beyond the lab as well. So do you have any final words the software robotics community would like to say? To, to the software robotics community, I, I'd like to say that I think we are on the brink of something fantastic. And we are not guaranteed to get there, but we have a great potential that we, we are ready to leverage. And the important thing in the next few years, we'll be discussing and figuring out how to make that next big leap into the future. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a good message. Yeah, and I would like to thank you, Laura, for this enjoyable and thoughtful discussion. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Mara, for inviting me.